You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 23. Today we're asking the question, how do safety professionals influence? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray and I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work, or the work of safety, and examine the evidence surrounding it. So David, what's today's question? Drew, the question for this episode is, how do safety professionals influence? And we mentioned last week when we were doing the episode on facts and stories, we we were talking a lot about influencing attitudes and, and behaviours of, of others. And this was um, a very central topic in my PhD research. So I thought it'd be fun to discuss and hopefully relevant for lots of our listeners in their day-to-day role as safety, safety professionals. So a safety professional needs to bring relevant information and be heard by the organisation. That's a line out of a paper by David Woods in 2006. And so the challenge that we all face in our role as safety professionals is being listened to, being heard, and then other people acting on the advice and the information that we're providing. Some other authors, uh, Swooster and Arnold in 2003, suggested that a safety professional's personal ability to influence and stimulate others is as important to safety as any formal safety management system uh, in an organisation. So we're going to talk about a paper today, um, but before we do that, we might dive into a bit more background Drew, on the safety profession and influence. I think, at least in my understanding and my experience, safety professionals don't actually make very many operational and strategic decisions in their organisations. In fact, other than a few things, Drew, maybe like drafting some policies or specifying some safety training content or classifying incidents, the safety professional's role is almost 99% influence. Yes. So, So sometimes we talk about that as having a staff professional role. Uh, which is a term I think comes out of the military, the idea that there's a chain of command, but then there's these functions that sit off on the side that are supposed to advise and provide work and provide services, but they've got very little formal authority except through the advice that they offer. Yeah, and that um, term staff professional comes up in the paper that we're we're talking about today as being these peripheral, I suppose, experts inside an organization that are that are trying to advise the people who do the work and the people who make the decisions. So so safety professionals influence, I suppose in not influence in two ways, but are, are trying to influence in two types of ways. One way where a safety professional is actually influencing a specific organizational decision or providing a specific piece of advice, doing this sort of in real time. This is when safety people talk about having a seat at the table, being able to be involved in a in a discussion or a decision as it's being made. And then the second thing that safety professionals do is try to create conditions or a climate in the organization that influences decision-making and and action without them needing to be directly involved in that. And they do that through systems and, and communication and setting of organizational priorities and things like that. So the Institutional Work Literature too talks about these two ways, which is the direct influence and the, the indirect influence, if you like. I like that way of dividing it. 
I, I think the sort of ideal for a safety person is to not need to be in the room in the knowledge that they have got people socialised and thinking about safety with systems in place so that safety is something that's just a normal part of decision making. But the reality is that safety professionals also have expert knowledge. So sometimes for those decisions to be made, they need to be there to offer direct counsel and direct advice. Yeah, I agree. I think that the, the, just the sheer practical reality is um, is that the safety person can't be everywhere for, for every decision. And, and if every decision relied on them being there, then it'd be a pretty slow and fat and lazy organisation. Um, but you're right. We, we as safety professionals do need to know which rooms we have to be in and which decisions that we actually do have to be there be there for. Um, so when when this doesn't work, Drew, and I think I, I don't think I've spoken to a single safety professional in my career who hasn't got a story of difficulty and frustration with with not being able to get people in their organisations to do what they think needs to be done. And so I pulled out a few studies um, that I came across during my PhD, Drew, where where when safety professionals are unable to influence their organization to do certain things, it can lead to really deep sort of guilt and disillusionment. Safety professionals as a profession, I think we do a lot of complaining and venting and insulting of, of, of managers. And there was one study that was done in France, which actually looked at influence of safety professionals. And they actually called off the study partway through because they were really, really concerned that something like one in three of the participants were in a state of professional distress, which means they're almost so depressed and anxious about not being able to get stuff done in their organization that they were um, sort of causing themselves psychological injury. So they stopped the study. And then another study in the US ranked the safety professionals as number five on the list of jobs where people hate their bosses. So so it's a, it, it, it can be a doom and gloom type environment for the safety profession, Drew. Have you heard similar stories? Yeah, I, I think it's the recipe for burnout where you have a sense of responsibility for something and possibly even have formal accountability for it, but you lack the power to directly control and influence it. And I think that's what a lot of safety professionals feel is a deep sense of care and responsibility, but not the ability to make changes directly themselves. So they're constantly trying to work through other people, which means constant frustration. Yeah, so it's, I mean, that's a good, that's a good summary. I think that's, um, I mean, for me, it's the only job I've ever done in, in my career. I've never been a, an operations manager or a project manager. I've never had control over stuff. So it's, it doesn't seem abnormal for me because it's sort of the only way I've ever worked. But um, I know I do, I do speak to safety professionals who have come out of operations roles and they do find that a very hard adjustment to be responsible for something so important but have no authority to make any decisions. So there was one study that was done that we call out. We weren't going to specifically um, talk about it in this paper, but there was a study that was done at the University of Queensland last year, Drew, where they surveyed 385 safety professionals to ask them about their influencing tactics and their perceived um, the perceived effectiveness of of the different types of influencing tactics. But in that, they used a, an intra-organisational influence theory by UCL from 2013. And I thought it was just worth a, men a mention of this framework. And we can, we can put a link to that original paper in the show notes because there was a model or a theory developed around organisational influence that talks about 11, 11 types of approaches to influence someone. Do you want to run through these 11, Drew? I think it's really good background information for people to think about. Sure. So this is basically just a list of different ways that you can get someone to come around to the same point of view as yourself. 
So the first and most obvious one is rational persuasion. So you present a logical argument along with factual evidence to show the benefit of what you're suggesting. The other person looks at the argument, looks at the evidence and agrees. The second really obvious one is some sort of exchange or negotiation. So either explicitly or implicitly you offer a reward if they do what you want. Um, so this is the way that we negotiate with our butcher. Uh, please can I have a piece of meat and they do what we want because we're offering money. The third one definitely doesn't work with your butcher which is the idea of an inspirational appeal which is that you link your request to their targets, values, hopes and ideals. Um, so if I was trying that on my butcher it would be well you like selling meat and I like getting meat surely we can come to some sort of arrangement here where you get the pleasure of giving me the meat and I get the pleasure of receiving it. No money needs to change hands. That's the inspirational appeal. Legitimating is where you call upon some sort of higher force. Um, there, there are a whole range of different forces they could be. They could be formal authority, they could be an external export expert, they could be organisational policy and rules. You basically say, you know, what I'm asking you is something that I have the right to ask and the legitimacy to ask. And so you should go along with it. You could be a little bit more transactional and uh, th this one, I'm not familiar with the term but called apprising. Basically saying how this will personally benefit the person that you're negotiating with. So, you know, you do this for me because it will actually be really good for you. And you join my safety project because being able to show on your performance review that you've been part of a safety improvement project will be good for you. Pressure, where we use threats or assertive behaviour, which can be really blatant or could, could just be nagging, basically. You know, make, you do this and I'll shut up about it. Um, or do this or bad things are going to happen. That's a really nice oil plant you've got there. I wouldn't want anything to happen to it. Um, collaboration, where in the, we offer assistance and use that assistance as a way of making the request. Yeah, I see you've had trouble with the audit. Let me come and help you out with making sure that those audit findings are taken care of. Yeah, what resources do you need to make sure that this is brought up to standard? Ingratiation, where we use compliments, flattery or praise. That's a fantastic job you're doing on this project. I really love the way you're doing it. Would it be nice to add in a few extra safety tasks to the project? Consultation, where we ask for input or suggestions. So I basically trying to get the other person to suggest for themselves what action they're going to take. Personal appeals, where you're drawing on a past interaction using loyalty or friendship. Um, you know, basically an exchange of favours. Um, so this isn't a direct transaction. It's not you do this for me and I'll do this for you. It's more, well, we're mates, you know, I help you out when I can. Um, I've got a favour to ask of you now. And then finally, the idea of coalition, which is creating a group of people who want the same thing to happen and using that political force of other people having already agreed in order to influence a further person. So there's nothing brand new in any of these. Hopefully they all are familiar. But I think that laying them out as a model like this sort of gives an idea of the range of different tools that are available to us that we all lean on in different times and different ways in order to try to influence other people. Yeah, that, that study that, that had used that model in, in the context of safety professional influence, Drew, they, they came to a couple of conclusions, which are just worth pointing out. I don't think they'll surprise, um, surprise our listeners too much. Uh, and they were specifically focused on influencing upwards. So influencing senior management or people influencing their own manager type of thing. They found that rational persuasion, so 
you know, a logical, factual argument and inspirational appeal, which is aligning the change or the decision to the values and the needs of the person were perceived as effective and that legitimating and exchange were perceived as ineffective. So going to a senior manager and saying, I'll do something for you if you do this um, is potentially not a useful strategy. And going to a senior person saying, do this because, you know, the board has said or or something is is not necessarily a, a good strategy either. And um, I like in, in this other paper, we, we're not going to talk about it again, Drew, but they did say in in the organizational context that you can actually get action without conviction. So because sometimes, and, and we might call this reluctant compliance. So you can get people to do things without actually, you know, feeling the need to do them. And I think that's a really important topic for safety professionals and safety because with some of these influencing tactics, particularly some of the, the harder tactics, you can get action to happen in your organization and decisions to be made. But the sustainability of that's going to be compromised if the person's not actually on board with doing what you're you're hoping them to do. And I think um, all of our listeners in the in the safety space will have stories of where they've got people in the organization to do things for safety reluctantly and it hasn't had the impact that they thought it was that they wanted it to have or it hasn't um, been sustainable. So, so this may well be something that we come back to later in this episode after we've looked at the main paper, but there's definitely lots of complexity when it comes to looking at influencing. And, and this idea that you're influencing once is very different from influencing over a long period of time is one of the complexities, is that you know, you know when you're negotiating with someone, often you don't actually want to negotiate them down to the lowest possible price. That's fantastic if you're only buying one thing right now. But if you're having a long-term relationship, the fact that you've got one over them is not going to do you any favours in the future. So this whole idea of influence is something that is really vital to safety, but is easy to oversimplify. And we simplify it a lot when we're doing uh, job interviews or when we're talking about what safety practitioners' skills need. Um, so, you know, lots of people will say that soft skills are important for safety or that we need safety practitioners with relationship skills. If you survey CEOs, one of the key things they say is they want safety practitioners to have these communication skills, ability to build relationships. But that's true, really, for any person in any job. Uh, what we really want to drill down into is specifically what works well in the safety role. What, what are the particular influencing tactics that are more or less effective for safety practitioners? And how do they use those tactics as part of this staff role they have in the organization? It's a really hard space to do research. You can't really just survey people to find out what influencing tactics they use because people aren't very aware of their own influencing skills and behaviors. So, Drew, should we move on to the to the paper we're going to discuss now? Yes. So, I really appreciate the opportunity to um to reread this. I I really really like this paper, and it was it was part of the inspiration for the ethnographic research that I did um during my own PhD, Drew. And the title of the paper is called "In Their Profession Service: How Staff Professionals Exert Influence in Their Organization." And I can't even remember how I came across it, Drew. It was published in 2013 in the Journal of Management Studies, but it's not by a safety author. Um, it wasn't published in a safety journal. It doesn't have the word safety in the paper title. And throughout the paper, they refer to the profession as the OSH profession for occupational safety and health. So this is one of these 
these things that you could do a fairly deliberate database search to try to find and put safety and OHS and and look in all of the spaces, and you would never, ever find this paper. My, my recollection is that you only found it because they were adopting a similar theoretical framework to one that you were starting to consider for your own PhD. So it showed up in the keywords that they were, the theory they were using behind it. And it just, oh, wow, here's this paper. It doesn't even have safety in the title, but when we look into it, it's it's entirely about safety practitioners. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite a big and involved um, study. So, and that's just one thing maybe to think about, Drew, when, when we talk about systematic literature reviews as well, is there is the potential even no matter how systematic you're trying to be to miss research, particularly where we've talked about safety science being published in, in so many different spaces and it can be easy to miss something. So for, for any young researchers who are listening, if you're trying to publish your safety work outside of a traditional safety journal, please, please put safety in the title so that the rest of us can find it. Yeah, that's a good rule because you, 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 know, the, you actually would want the safety science community to be reading this type of a paper. So the research was, it's only one, one name on the paper, um, Thibault Daudigus, and I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but I never did, I never studied French at school. Uh, he's in a business and management postgraduate school in Grenoble in, in France, and he's, he's published a lot of work on organisational institutionalism. He's done quite a bit on corporate social responsibility, and more recently, some of the changes in um, organisational dynamics around the sharing economy and things like that. This, this seemed to be a, a, a once-off foray into, into the safety profession. And what, what he was really interested in was understanding how, how staff professionals enact this practical agency to manoeuvre around these formal constraints in their organisation. Um, so the fact that they don't have decision-making rights and they, um, they're not part of the structure, but they have to get people to, they have to sort of apply their agency to, to influence others in the organisation. So that was, that was the initial research aim, which was how, how, how do staff professionals do this? How do they promote and disrupt organisational and operational practices? Drew, they, they're exploring this idea that's in the institutional literature called the embedded agency paradox. I'm not sure if you'd come across it. I hadn't come across it until we started looking at the institutional work thing and, and it kind of asked the question about how how people are able to influence change when their actions, intentions and rationality are all conditioned by the institution that they're trying to modify. So it's the, this insider bias. So if you're inside the system, can you really um, look at the system and change the system that you're a part of? And I, I think this is one of those reasons why safety needs to look outside of the safety literature to get hold of its theories and to get hold of its ways of doing research. This is a problem that safety culture has been stuck on without really knowing it. That you know, If you think carefully about safety culture theory, then the people who are trying to change the culture are also part of the culture. So how does that work? Where do they even get their vision for how the culture changes, given that they're supposedly conditioned and trained to think and using the symbols of the culture? And so the institutional work theory has created this idea of embedded agency as a way of trying to explore and resolve this question. And that this paper is part of a wider body of work trying to uh, attack and understand how can things be stable most of the time? How do people get locked into their positions? And yet institutions do seem to evolve. They do seem to change. Sometimes people are successful in creating transformations of organisations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the question becomes is how does that, uh, yeah, like you said, Drew, how does that transformation happen? And this is specifically trying to look at what's the role of, you know, an individual 
practitioner or, or professional in trying to initiate some kind of change, some kind of influence over over individual actions or organisational practices. And this is sort of part of this idea of embedded agency is is sort of part of a much broader social psychology theoretical discussion that's you know been going on since the Enlightenment around structure and agency, really about whether a person's actions are influenced you know, more by their own free will or or more by the formal and informal structures of society and organizations. But that's a that's a whole that's a whole discipline in itself, social psychology. But I think what you said earlier, Drew, about it's easy to simplify these ideas like I need someone to be able to influence and here's a ABC model of influence and just go and do that and people will do whatever you ask them to do. And it just doesn't work like that. So Drew, you mentioned um staff professionals earlier. So initially when um this research was kicking off, I'm not sure that they knew that they were going to do it on safety professionals, but they became curious uh, about the safety profession as being one of these these types of staff professionals that but but what was interesting is is they got a talk in the paper about safety profession having this kind of contingent and craft like knowledge. So it's not like engineering and accounting where there's kind of like a, a very clear evidence and standard base to the work that's being done and and also felt that the role was a little bit ambiguous. So felt that you know, like the human resources department and the information technology department kind of have a pretty clear and, and defined role. But, you know, the researchers just initially thought the safety, it's really, it's, there's no, they, they couldn't identify what the knowledge base underpinning the, the profession or the role was. And they also couldn't identify what the kind of, you know, they were in, embedded within the operation they weren't actually really doing their own types of things like some of the other departments and organizations so i think they just got really curious about about the profession yeah i think particularly there's a very defined role for someone like an accountant who's also doing a staff role who's also sitting slightly outside the formal hierarchy but an accountant mainly goes off and does their own thing they're not required to exert this kind of influence that's expected of safety professionals. And arguably that's true even of most of an HR role, is if HR goes and does its thing, then it's not expected to follow right down through to operations. To the extent that HR gets involved in that it's on an ad hoc basis or when a particular dispute happens or when something like training needs to be arranged. Whereas safety people have this much more nebulous connection. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I've said that in a few talk, a few um, talks at different times, Drew. That the safety profession is the only profession that actually needs to know how the work happens. You know, like all of the other profession, all the other functional roles in organisation can kind of do their job without actually knowing how the person climbs up a ladder and how they actually install a piece of equipment. Yeah, that, that, that's a fascinating distinction. Though. I'm trying to think through now. Yeah, I, I imagine you could be a well, sorry, I'm speaking outside my limits of competence, I think, but I can certainly imagine an accountant not actually needing to know what are the things that are getting bought in and out of the organisation and what the money's being spent on, so long as they know how to appropriately count those things and how they know how to appropriately track those things. Actually, how the work happens um, is not key. Yeah, and I think that's, and so, I mean, don't get, I don't, I'm not trying to offend anyone and, and don't get me wrong, context is important in every role and the more context, the better, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, the risk, the safety risk is created in the operational work that happens in an organisation. It's created, it's shaped, it's, it's, it's managed. And that's not true of, you know, other, other functional activities so much. So anyway, let's, so, so that's, that's, you know, that, that sparked some curiosity. So let, I might just go through the method because I thought the method was was pretty interesting. Um, 
Drew, they they got access to one of the world's largest multinational construction companies, a company called Vinci. It's a it's a French-owned company. They do about 40 billion euros a year of, of turnover. And so they had an 18-month study period. So when they first started, Drew, they kind of just went in and did a did some unstructured interviews. They did some site observations on some construction sites for several days. They looked at the company's safety documentation. They looked about some broader information about safety and construction more broadly. And then they did, then they formed their research question. So I said they had an aim earlier. They wanted to, they, they had a broad aim for the research. And then they sort of narrowed that down a little bit to look at investigating the influencing tactics of safety professionals and identify the source of their legitimacy. Because if it's not formal, if they're not don't have formal authority, what is this source of their ability to tell people to do things or, or get get things done? Do you see that very often, Drew, where people actually do a phase of research to come up with their their specific question? I don't actually know the background here, but this looks very much like a PhD project or at least a PhD style project that starts with a broad question, goes through a pilot. And then as a result of the pilot has refined a very tight research question. So I don't know how common it is, but it's certainly very good practice when you're doing a project of this sort of length. And particularly, I think being from a management school, they, the, the researchers didn't have any experience with, with the safety profession, didn't have any much experience with, with construction sites and projects. So they're actually learning themselves, you know, establishing their own context and, and getting just information about, you know, the, the, what they were going to be investigating. So anyway, so then they, they created phase two where they got access to eight subsidiaries of, of this construction organization. They went and did 40 interviews, so over 60 hours of data, and they just gathered broad information about the work that safety professionals were doing and what sort of how people viewed their sources of power, if you like, or this idea around legitimacy. And so they spoke to the safety professionals, the top managers in each of those eight subsidiaries, other functional departments, some construction site managers, and some site workers. And then during this period, they actually had access to a broader research group. Drew, like you said, that there was currently three other research pro- safety research projects going on with different universities inside this construction company. And they had kind of like a research steering group happening, and they got to kind of test their ideas back and forward during this period where they did these 40 interviews. Anyway, at the end of, at the end of all that, they found some interesting findings that they didn't talk too much about in the paper, but you could see and I really like the style of writing. They're actually just laying out, you know, their their confusion on the way through, their um, their wonderings. One of their initial findings was that they observed that the agency of safety professionals or the ability of the safety professional to influence depended mainly on specific macro type conditions. So, for example, if a business had low economic performance, so a business had no money, the safety profession had very little influence to get stuff done because the business had no money. Or if the safety or the safety record. So if the safety record was good and there weren't many accidents, then the safety professional couldn't really do any new activities. Whereas if the safety record was poor, then all of a sudden the safety professional got a whole lot of extra influence that they possibly normally wouldn't have. So Drew, I found that kind of interesting, and the, and the paper didn't really go on too much about that, um, about what these sort of macro contextual factors are and how it then relates to an individual's ability to influence. It's been a while since I had read this paper, and I was really interested to see this when I came back to it, because I was sitting in a seminar actually just a couple of days ago with someone looking at leaders within organisations in in the safety context. And what he said was that 
every time he found something interesting at the micro level within the organization and tried to trace it, it always went back to the macro, to how the organization sat with its external stakeholders. So yeah, this is a really interesting finding that it's not about directly the specific tactic you're using necessarily, um, although we'll come to some patterns in those, but that the role itself is so heavily situated in the context of where the organization is at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's that's where, you know, this, you mentioned sa- the safety culture literature, and, you know, that's what I really like about the way that the institutional logics literature is is taking shape over the last 10 years or so, because they talk about those logics at different levels of the organization and the interconnectedness between the the broad organizational logic you know around we might think about them as priorities or or truths or something like that and then just how powerful that is over individual um, actions all the way through the organization and how that interplay works david it's probably worth mentioning due to the lead time we have on these episodes uh, that we're both recording this from home during times of enforced movement lockdown. And I'm willing to bet that if we found any safety practitioner working today and asked them, what are you doing? They would not be explaining what they're doing in terms of what sort of safety theories they subscribe to and what they think is generally best for the long-term interests of the organization. And I think that sort of shows in a exaggerated sense, the thing that safety practitioners are always facing is that the external constraints of the situation drive a lot of what we're doing, no matter how proactive we try to be. Yeah, absolutely. So then there's a there was a third phase of the study, and I'll just get through the method, Drew, and this is what they call their systematic data collection. So now they went, right, okay, we know we've got some context now. We've done 60 hours of interviews. We're, we're pretty sure we've got a bit of a model. Now we're going to go and do some, some semi-structured interviews. And a semi-structured interview is just one where you would have a set a series of open questions so that each interview follows a similar type of pattern, but you're still collecting very qualitative, well, you're, you're still collecting all qualitative data. So they did these 18 semi-structured interviews. They, they carefully controlled for where they went. So they took all 231 subsidiary companies for this overall construction company. And then they controlled for, you know, the variety of work, the geographic location, the size of the unit, they controlled for economic performance and safety performance because of what we mentioned earlier. And then they also made sure that the safety professional had held their role for more than 12 months. So they they actually wanted to make sure that they didn't go and talk to people and then realize that they found something and then they only found it because they were on a, you know, eight poor performing, pro, you know, 20 poor performing projects or 20 tunneling projects or something like that. David, I probably should just jump in here and say that researchers use the term controlled a lot to try to convince you that they've taken account of various factors. In this case, remember, we're doing qualitative research. So when we talk about controlled, we just mean meant that they were careful to make sure that they picked their 18 people from a wide variety of reasonably representative backgrounds. So they're sampling across the organization. They're not just being 18 people with the same views. Yeah, exactly. And then they reported all of that data in the in the paper as well. So sometimes researchers say that they've done certain things and and, and it's hard to check um, what they've actually done, but all of all of the data tables were there. And just as a spoiler on the idea that good safety is good business, there is no pattern between these companies and their economic performance and their safety performance, good or bad or average. So for people who say that good safety is good business, I'm not sure that's 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 what the data says. But anyway, we we digress. So that was the method. Drew, and then they ended up with um, 
saying that safety people really rely on really two broad things for the basis of their power and their legitimacy in influencing others. And the way that they describe these two things and the words, they, they probably needed to come up with better labels to get things to stick. But the first was what they called relational legitimacy building. And the second they was a word that's already in the institutional work literature um, around the professions, which is called unobtrusive influencing tactics. So one was about you know, how they're kind of relating to others. And then one is more about the specific tactics they're using. So Drew, we might just rip through these, these two different categories of findings and, 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 you know, feel free to jump in where you can. And some of this might not be of no surprise to our listeners. And, and some of it might be a new angle on something that they, they, you know, might've been thinking about before. So in the relational legitimacy building, this is all about internal and network, internal and external networks and using references from outside the organization or different parts of the organization. So this is what, when a safety person will go, oh, well, we're in the oil and gas industry and Shell does it like this, so we should do it like that because another company's doing it this way. Or you know, an industry association or a trade union provides a particular piece of advice, um, a regulator or something like that. And, and the safety professional kind of leverages these external data and reference points to legitimate and provide support for their own advice. So they're not standing up there on their own and saying, this is what I think you should do. They're saying, this is what I think you should do because these other people think, you know, we should do it as well. So Drew, any, any thoughts about that external, you know, legitimate relational legitimate legitimacy building? I'm, I'm very interested in the one thing that's missing from this list, which is using external academics or using gurus. And I'm wondering whether that's because they didn't see that in the data or because being outside of safety, they didn't recognize coded references. So I've certainly seen myself people who use big names in safety to legitimize what they're doing within the organization, but they often don't appeal directly to those people. They appeal directly to the ideas. Um, So you see, for example, people quoting uh, Woods or Decker or Todd Conklin, they don't necessarily say, oh, Todd says, therefore we should do this. But they legitimize the things that they're proposing by using languages from that view of safety. Um, and pe- people in behavior-based safety, similarly, they use the languages. They don't necessarily directly refer to Klaus or Geller, but that they appeal to legitimacy by invoking those ideas. Exactly right, Drew. And I don't, it might have been in the data or it might not have been in the coding, but um, I think definitely this idea that the safety professional is, is, is leveraging this external reference point or this external relationship or this external advice and, and being the voice of that inside their organization. And then they had this, these internal um, relationship building. And this is like having visible partnerships with, or visible relationships, sorry, with you know, powerful people in the organization influencers, powerful managers, and making that visible so people know that, oh, this person is going to be supported by this person, so I probably should listen to what they say the first time. And and safety professionals really build these alliances um, and relationships quite extensively across their organization and including with their own internal network of safety professionals. And I don't think that would be a surprise to any listener to think that, uh, you know, safety professionals are generally, or let's say, Safety professionals that have good uh, good ability to influence and get stuff done in their organisation have a bit have a broad and large and high quality internal network within their organisation. It's interesting. We, we often talk about this 
in a negative sense. You know, I'll, you, you know you'll, you'll, you'll never get something done because such and such person is in their ear. You, we, we know that people can have influence and can block things happening or can make things happening because they've got the ear of the right people. And, and that's how we're expressing in a positive sense here is that having those relationships, being able to advise people and have them listening, or being able to speak and have people assume that you're speaking with the voice of someone powerful um, is really effective in getting things done. Yeah, if it looks to others like, you know, important people in the organisation listen to you and trust you, then it's it's a reference point for other people in the organisation to, you know, maybe give you the benefit of the doubt and listen and, and trust you as as well. So then beyond these uh, these relationships if you like the these unobtrusive influencing tactics and and i suppose why i like the way that this was written is because the it was sort of an outsider's looking at the safety profession not being a safety researcher or not having any experience and and they they made some comments which are quite interesting they said that they found safety professionals to be very shrewd and somewhat creative and they sort of suggested well they didn't sort of suggest they specifically suggested that um that the actions of of a number of safety professionals could be seen as deceptive if their actions were not, you know, deceptive or Machiavellian or or bad if their actions were not actually aimed at promoting an admirable goal like keeping people safe. And so there was an example, for example, where we spoke earlier about government reports. There was a particular material that was being used in a construction job. The safety professional thought that there was a better material, but better, more expensive material that could be used. The government had just done a report into the the safety issues or the the chemical exposure issues associated with this particular product and the safety person sort of cherry-picked information. The government report basically said that we actually don't have any information that suggests that this is harmful. But um, the safety professional kind of had cherry-picked information out of that government report and got a particular site manager to change the product based on saying, we need to change to this different product because there's a government report into the health impacts and um, we can find we, sh- we need to find a healthier option. Yeah, you, you say shrewd, I say lying and deceptive. Tomato, tomato, really depends whether the end result is a good result or a bad result, whether that's a good tactic or a bad one. Yeah, and look, I didn't say shrewd. Um, the researcher said shrewd. That's uh, that's in direct quotes. And and don't get me wrong, Drew, when we do practical takeaways, I've got in, in bold capital letters about, you know, be ethical because that's it's it's not uh, it's not a it's not a place that the safety profession needs to be to get people to listen to if that's where we need to be then we're not very good at at our job well th- those were you know, a couple of examples they used and more often they spoke of safety people deliberately maybe oversimplifying external information in order to make a stronger point than the external reference could make so removing some of the subtlety from the information in order to hit harder with it but they also talked about being shrewd in the sense of switching tactics to match the interests of the person they were talking to. So if they thought that someone would listen to what the rules were, then they'd talk about the rules. If they thought that, that what they'd in, be interested in is the financial situation, they'd talk about the financial benefits. If they thought it was someone who'd be influenced by a senior manager, they'd talk about what the senior manager thought. So this, you know, adopting tactics to match the situation and the person and switching tactics if one tactic wasn't working. Yeah, yeah, I think that's they 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 labelled this they labelled this a bit um, adaptive framing of issues, Drew. And this is where they, this is this selective use of managerial, administrative, accounting, legal, technical, moral arguments to promote you know their their safety agenda. So, like you said, Drew, if if, if a 
if they would say, oh, this is going to be better for the construction process or this is going to save us some money or this is going to make you look good or, you know, very creative in the way that they're able to latch their safety arguments on onto other things in the organization. Um, but what they also found was as soon as the, the safety professional met with some kind of resistance, they straight away changed their argument to the risk of legal repercussion. So it would, it would go something like this where they would say to a, a manager, you know, if we go and if we change this practice, then it's going to make the construction process, you know, a couple of days faster. It's going to be good for the project. It's going to be better for safety. And if the manager said, oh, I'm not sure, then they go, oh, but we have to do it anyway because the regulation requires us to. Um, and this is a consistent finding with uh, something that Kirsten Olson found in, in a study in 2012 in New Zealand, which is just the default go-to influencing tactic for the safety professional was, you know, legitimating their advice through the requirements of law. Yeah, what, what, I, found, what I found interesting was that in this study, it wasn't necessarily the default. The legal risk was almost expressed as like a fallback position. You know, if one tactic doesn't work, we'll fall back to another one. And if that one doesn't work, well, we can say it's the law. You have to. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't. You're right. It wasn't a default. It was a. It was a safety net. But again, I'd say if if if, if that's your safety net, then you know you. you I, I don't know if that's where the profession wants to be or or should be either. But I'm sure that our listeners who've been in and around the safe profession for a while are. I've got lots of stories um, based on what we're kind of sharing in these findings. They also went on, Drew, to talk about the use of symbolic enablers. So, you know, again, lots of, lots of you know, not, not simple language, but this is sort of just stories and anecdotes that speak in favour of the pr practice they're trying to promote. So, you know, touting the actions of other managers, building local heroes. So actually making what they want to do seem to be something that, to use the framework earlier, is, is really appealing to, to the person. So this project, we did this on this project and it was, you know, the world was fantastic. And I think safety people do that a lot in, you know, in my last organization, we did this and it was excellent. So we should do this again here or find one business unit that you can get something to work in and then sing the praises of what's going on in that business unit to the whole rest of the organization to get it to spread across the business. The last bit, Drew, that they spoke about was, which is, I suppose, a bit more transactional, which is this instrumental use of organizational processes, which is just using the safety management system processes to actually get decisions made and get advice done. So you mentioned earlier, Drew, about um, audit actions. So using audits, using incident investigations, using performance reporting processes, embedding themselves as safety professionals into operational processes like work permitting and site inspections and delivering induction training and doing design reviews. So just either using the processes that you've got or putting yourself into operational processes to be able to influence and change the course of, you know, the way that the operation's running. So David, I'm very interested in your opinion on the, I, I guess legitimacy is a little bit of an overloaded word here, but on the practicality and ethics of these unobtrusive tactics, because I can absolutely see the strategic advantage if a safety person knows what the right thing to do is and is just having trouble getting it done, then obviously the ethical thing to do is to try to be a good influencer, to try to persuade people to do the right thing. And I think a lot of safety practitioners see that as part of your role, part of their role. But as we were going through that list, I was thinking these are all the argument, these are all the arguments and all the strategies that people use in the face of evidence to try to avoid decluttering safety. So in our safety clutter research, 
when we find that an activity doesn't work, we find all of these tactics are used to try to defend the activity. So we see the adaptive framing. People start off with saying, oh, we're doing this because it works. And then you show them that it doesn't work. And they say, oh, well, we have to do it because it's legally required. And you show them that it isn't legally required. So they say, oh, we're doing it because it makes good sense. Oh, then, oh, we can't change it because it's part of the system and we'd have to change the whole system. And so the adaptive framing is used to defend what the safety practitioner is currently doing. And it's almost like a mental defense against changing their mind about what the right thing to do is. And so I think that's the danger of slippery influencing tactics, is they're great for persuading others, but they're really bad for being open to updating your own beliefs in the face of evidence. Yeah, Drew, that's good. And just for listeners' reference, I'm sure Drew's talking again about take fives then (laughs) when you went through that process. But I think if a safety professional wants to get an outcome, then this is the slope that you're going to be on because this is the slide that you jump this is the slide that you jump on because you're trying to get something done and and the ends justify the means if you like drew the the safety professional at least in my professional identity research has such a benevolent agenda around trying to keep people safe that they almost justify any way of getting that that outcome in the organization is 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 justified i think i don't know if that should be the safety professional's primary objective which is getting getting outcomes i I think if you thought about the primary objective as a safety professional as building better relationships, which is more of a longer term agenda, but then makes your life easier in the longer term, then you wouldn't jump on this slide at all because you'd be more concerned about asking questions and understanding the position of the person and, and, you know, working together with people in your organization rather than just, I need to force this person to change their mind to do this right now. No, I think that's a really useful way to look at it as these tactics are the right thing if what you're trying to do is win an argument right now that absolutely has to be won. But if you approach every argument like that, then there's a real long-term cost. Um, I think in terms of relationship building, for example, particularly when it comes to drawing on external references for legitimacy, the the long-term tactic is if you don't have the evidence to say so, to say, look, you know, I'd like you to do this, but actually, honestly, the evidence is fairly weak. I just think it's a good idea. And train people that when you do say, no, actually, this case, the evidence is slam dunk. We've got to do it. That you've trained them into thinking, okay, if it's weak evidence, listen. If it's no evidence, ignore. If it's strong evidence, well, you have to listen to the safety practitioner. That's not a tactic that wins you every argument because sometimes you just have to admit, no, I don't have the evidence for this one or no, it's not really strong but in the long term builds the relationships as a trusted advisor. Yeah, we probably stumbled into this onto this practical takeaway Drew, but I think that there's some you know, really good advice there that's worth reinforcing which is, you know, for safety professionals to think about the long game that they're playing in their organization around their own influence. So, a lot of these research papers are looking at transa- individual transactions and, you know, the safety professional as as being a trusted advisor or a trusted authority in the long term in their organization probably needs to think about different transactional tactics to play that long game. So Drew, is there anything else we want to say about this about this paper and the findings of this paper before we do, you know, finish on some practical takeaways? So again, large construction company, three phases, lots of interviews, lots of side observations, came and kind of said safety professionals influenced by building really good relationships and leveraging those both externally and internally and, and sources of information. And then they come and adaptively frame these issues and selectively position their their safety advice within other things that they can hook onto 
And and if all that fails, then they can always just say that, oh, you're not going to be delivering your duty of care if you don't do what I say. So, so the one other thing that I found interesting that I'm just going to put a pin in, and I think we might come back to in an entire future episode, is this idea that keeps cropping up about the idea of legitimacy. It's something that comes from both the profession's literature and from the institution's literature. The idea that the ability to power, to have power, to have agency, is linked to the ability to describe what you're doing as legitimate. And the way safety practitioners establish the legitimacy of their roles and of specific things they suggest, I think is really key to understanding how the role works and improving the role. We don't have much directly to say about that from this paper, so maybe we could move specifically on to... So I'm, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the author's name. I'll leave that to you, David. But he provided two specific practical takeaways that I think we can endorse. Yeah, look, and in the context, like just diving in in the context of of the research findings, he suggested that safety professionals should secure diverse types of endorsement across their organisation. He talked about coercive, normative and cognitive. So to make up for their lack of formal authority. So you need to have the ability to kind of coerce people and guide people. You need to have the ability to tell people what it needs to look like and you need to be able to kind of, you know, rationalise and and provide data and information and things like that depending on the context and the situation. And then also suggested that you need to develop as big and as effective network of flexible connections inside and outside your organisation. And by flexible, that means connections that you can draw in and out to your own situation as and when you you need to. So, you know, Drew, I think I think it's not rocket science probably for a lot of our our listeners to say, yeah, I do that. I've got a big network of of connections, and yeah, I always position my advice within the context of of the situation and the person who I'm talking to. So. That's not maybe hugely new and, and earth-shattering, but I want to talk a bit more broadly about... So, so David, I'm going to jump in j- just quickly before we do. I want to make that coercive, normative and cognitive a little bit more practical for our listeners, because I think that is actually quite a useful one. If you're going to give advice about something, really in safety, there are three things that you could point to. And I think it's a great to actually think about, can I do all three of these? So the coercive is, can I point to some external source of authority that says this is the way it should be? Um, So, you know, can I point to a regulation? Can I point to a law? Can I point to some sort of standard? Um, Normative is, can I give some evidence that this is the right thing to do? So, you know, for example, is there evidence that this works? Is this reputably shown to do what I think it can do? And cognitive, can I explain why it's a good idea? Can I explain to someone else why it would be expected to work, why it is a good idea. And if, you, if for any particular activity or thing that you want to do, you can point to both the authority and it's the right thing to do, and you can explain why it's the right thing to do, then you should be fairly secure that what you've got is the right thing and you will be very persuasive because you'll be able to adapt depending on what the person is looking for. Yeah, that's a good, um, I'd sort of glossed over that framework, Drew, but I like the way that you described that. It's a good simple test, of, particularly for safety professionals who are going to go into a you know, maybe a difficult discussion or, or or they really want to change and disrupt their organization in some way that actually being prepared through that, those being prepared with those three angles, if you like, or, or checks and tests, Drew, would be a useful thing for them to prepare themselves around. Then I was, I was just reflecting, I suppose, on the paper, Drew, and, and my experience in the safety profession. And I, I sort of thought, we said that 
the role is maybe 99% influence. It's, it's kind of the measure of success and the measure of effectiveness of a safety professional is their ability to, to influence in their organization. So, you know, another takeaway for our listeners will be learn about influence. So we provided an 11-step framework that we'll link in the show notes. There's a lot of books and a lot of um, studies in, in influence. And it's probably the single most important skill that knowledge workers have. And it's becoming even more important every single day with the increasing complexity of our, of our sort of our world that we live in and work in. Um, there's a specific book I'll recommend here that I think every safety practitioner should have on their shelf, which is by Keel Dini. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And if you're looking across your shelf and you've got books about accidents, books about safety management systems, there really should be something there about how to persuade others as well. I'm going to put a negative recommendation to how to win friends and influence people. Uh, that, that's a book about sales tactics, not about persuasion. But Kildini's The Psychology of Persuasion. Yeah, and, and I'll throw a, throw a recommendation in there as well, Drew. Cohen and Bradford have written a book called Influence Without Authority that's now in its third edition, and it talks about how to lead people who don't report to you, and it's specifically focused on the organizational context. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the original book, I think it was written 20 years ago, but it's a really, really, really good read. So Cohen and Bradford, Influence Without Authority, um, is another great place to start and a good read. And then I suppose, Drew, after learn a little bit about influence, look at a few different models of influence and then reflect on your own approach as a practitioner. How do you influence others? What I, what's your default? What's your safety net? What's your, what's your approach in different situations? And even if you want, reflect on how you are influenced by others. What are the things that get you to change your decision? Who do you listen to in an organization and why do you listen to them? And then I'd suggest people just practice different approaches in different contexts. Uh, reflect when you haven't been successful in influencing and, and think about why that didn't go the way that you wanted it to go. And, and we know the usefulness of, of reflective practice in improving our, our effectiveness and, and in learning. And then I'd, I think just to touch on these points that we danced around a little bit, be deliberate about the style that you promote and, and, and what you do in your organization because of the impact that it will have on safety climate. If the safety department becomes known as, as the team that will use any argument just to basically get their way, then that can send some strong symbols and signals into the organization about safety and how people think about safety more broadly. Model the type of influence that you would like people to have, be having conversations about when you're not there. So if you know what you want is people focused on compliance and what the regs say, then use that as your discussion. If what you want people is to talk about, you know, what is defaulting to the safe option, then use that language. If you want people to be thinking in evidence base, then use evidence yourself as the influencing tactic. And I think the last, the last practical takeaway would be um, the ends don't justify the means. So be ethical. So don't manipulate incident classifications to make a program look more successful than it otherwise would have been. Don't, uh, don't, just don't, I suppose, would be the, would be the practical takeaway. You know, if you can't, yeah, if you can't get someone to listen, keep, keep trying and keep reflecting on your own approach before you go and do something that's, uh, that's unprofessional or, un- or unethical, even if you think it's with the best of, uh, best of intentions. Yeah, and if you don't want to be ethical for its own sake, don't misrepresent a, what another report says because guaranteed the time you misrepresent it is the time that someone else is going to go and read it. And there's your influence lost forever. So we usually do invitations for our listeners. I'm really interested, Drew, in 
in understanding if people are actually doing anything with their safety in their own individual learning or with their safety organization about influencing skills for safety professionals? Does anyone have any programs, development programs running? Does anyone have any frameworks for the professionals within their organization about how to approach influencing skills? Because my hypothesis would be it's something that we know is really important. We always talk about, but you know, maybe very few organizations are actually trying to do something to understand and, and, and enhance it for their safety organization. Yeah, so, so I'm in, very interested in that too. Uh, today we asked the question, how do safety professionals exert influence? And to make the answer as brief as possible, I think we said that they exert influence through relational legitimacy building, which is you're building external networking and references from outside the organization or internal networks of relationships and influence, and through unobtrusive influencing tactics. And we were a little on the fence, though, whether that was a good or a bad thing. Thanks, Drew. I thought you were going to throw to me to answer that one, so I'm, I'm happy that you, you asked and answered the question. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 